Well, you know, every year, the Super Bowl is really about the two best teams on the biggest stage in, in North America for the right to call themselves champions. Uh, and and that's, that's huge. That's what everybody plays all season long for. That's what people play their lives, uh, all through their lives for. Uh, there are no shortcuts to this game. I mean, you've got uh, Champ Bailey on the Broncos, who's one of the best uh, defensive players in the history of the league, and he's been playing for 13, 14 years, and this is his first time going. So, I mean, this is, uh, th- there are no shortcuts. You can play your entire life. You can be a great player and never have the opportunity to play in this big game. In order to, to make it to the Super Bowl, your team has to beat out all these other teams that are trying to bite and scratch and claw their way to the top. Well, the best chance that any team has of, uh, of getting to the Super Bowl and, and winning the championship is to have flawless execution from all 11 men on the field. For those of you who don't watch football, uh, for those of you who have soccer uniforms on, um, <laughs> well, I guess, you know, soccer has 11 guys on the field too. But yeah, you, you need flawless execution from all 11 guys that you have on the field on any given play. And without question, the more in sync the players are, the 11 guys are with one another, and the, the, the more uh, cohesively they play, the greater their chances of winning are going to be. But conversely, the less in sync uh, a team plays together, the lesser their chances of, of winning are, are going to be. Uh, it's pretty self-evident. But you know, one of the great things about football, as opposed to just about any other sport, is the amount of involvement that each player has on each play. You see, like, Take baseball, for example. I mean, if you're playing in left field, you can technically stand there all game and never even touch the ball, and your team would still win. So you're not even a factor in the game. Uh, In basketball, I mean, I guess theoretically, you could just do wind sprints all game if you've got Michael Jordan on your team or Kobe Bryant or LeBron James. You're probably going to win anyway, and you just do wind sprints all game. Um, But in football, every single guy on the field has a job to do. Every single play. And there's no other major league professional sport which requires the team work together as tightly as football requires. Imagine for just a moment that you had one player who just... He was stubborn, and so he absolutely refused to do, to do his job. You know, whether it was blocking, whether it was running a route. But for the sake of illustration, let's imagine that you've got a wide receiver who only runs the routes that he thinks are best. And we'll just call him Keyshawn Johnson. I don't know where that name comes from. I mean, he used to do that all the time. Um, he refuses to run the play that's called, runs the route that he thinks is best, never listens to what the quarterback has to say when the quarterback is making calls. So instead of, instead of listening to the quarterback when, when the quarterback calls the play, he does his own play calling off on the side while the quarterback is, is getting the rest of the team ready. Now let's extend the illustration just a little bit and imagine that every one of your wide receivers did the same thing, and so did your running back. They're all running their own plays, whatever they feel like doing. And if you understand football at all, you know that it would be impossible for a team like this to ever win on a professional level. It just wouldn't happen, and they definitely would not make it to the Super Bowl. The odds of them ever just winning a game would be pretty slim. But what would ever give us the idea, the slightest idea, that church is all that different? You know, I I suspect that if the game of football had been played in Paul's day, he may have used football as an illustration for how the church 
is supposed to function as a group. Uh, Paul used the body instead, which is probably a better illustration anyway, because you know there are people in other countries outside of North America who have no idea how to play football or how it works or anything like that. Everybody knows how the body works, though. Uh, you know, each part has a different function uh, and different abilities that fit in with that function. Well, that, that's how that's how football works too. You know, you don't put a, a wide receiver into a, you know as your center to, to hike the ball. You don't put him in as a blocker. Likewise, you don't put the blocker, you know, the, the offensive lineman as a wide receiver because man, the, the yeah the cornerbacks will just be sitting back there. Uh, waiting for the guy to get there. They're just built differently. They've got different speeds, different functions, different abilities. And that's the same with the church. We've all got different functions. We've all got different gifts from the Holy Spirit. We've all got different abilities and passions. Why then does this conflict in which one or more people are, are, are not in sync with everybody else, why does that even exist within the church? It certainly existed in the Philippian church, using the illustration of the body. Why, why does it seem sometimes like the body of Christ has two left feet? Why? Well, assuming that it's not a case of, of wheat and tares, uh, it's ultimately because God isn't done with us yet. Not done with us as a body, not done with us individually. And in the meantime, the desires of the flesh get in the way. But Paul has told the Philippians that he's confident that God will complete the work that he started in them. Not because of how well or, uh, they're functioning together as, as a team or as a unit or as a body, but in spite of how poorly they function together at times. And while Paul is sure of the fact that God will complete what he has begun in the Philippian Christians, he's also made it clear that he's not sure about something else. He's not sure about whether or not he's going to live. He doesn't know, am I going to live? Am I going to die? He doesn't know. He's waiting to stand trial before Nero as he wrote this, and he was unsure as to whether or not it was going to be a positive outcome, you know, where he was going to live, or a negative outcome. But he was sure of one other thing uh, in that situation. He was sure that Christ would be glorified no matter what. That was one thing that he did have control over one one aspect of his situation that he did have control over whether or not he chose to exalt christ in his circumstances because for paul to live is christ and to die is gain so christ was going to be exalted and glorified and as as he thinks as paul thinks about uh which seems more likely life or death uh you know whether he would remain alive and continue to bear fruit or whether the lord would just take him home he realizes in, in verse 24 which we covered last week he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Talking to the Philippians, on your account. And so he continues uh, in, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 25 and 26. We read this. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. There's no doubt about it. You know, Paul, Paul knew these guys. The Philippian church could, could really benefit from having someone like Paul to come alongside them, to stand with them, and to help them to be purged of the conflict, of the, of the people who had their own motives, getting them straightened out and getting them in line with everybody else, to be purged of, of the strife and the conflict and the divisions that they were facing from within. And it, it's almost like the more 
Paul thinks about this, the more Paul thinks about the the situation, the more probable he feels it is that the Lord has more work for him to do here on earth and therefore more fruit to bear in his ministries. Well, there are two reasons that Paul gives us here that the Philippians needed somebody like Paul to stand with them, to come alongside them. First of all, Paul realized that uh, he realized that they needed him for the sake of making progress in the faith. Um, this obviously means a lot of things. It can mean uh, extending the, the gospel message to the people around them. Uh, it means understanding doctrine. Uh, it means growing in Christ's likeness, which is ultimately the goal that God is working all things toward in the believer. But there are a few things that help us to grow in Christ's likeness than to have somebody who's pretty similar to us, but a little further down, uh, down that path, a little further along on the journey. And, and they're able to stand beside us and coach us through the ups and downs of life and use scripture to motivate us and, and pray with us and things like that. The last two times I've, uh, I've gone out to Las Vegas to visit my, my parents, I had the privilege of having lunch with their pastor, uh, Pastor Greg Massonary. He's the guy who wrote uh, Ascribe to the Lord, a song that we sing here sometimes. Um, he's actually one of, the, one of the godliest and wisest men I've, I've ever met, uh, gentle and encouraging. And he's able to, to strengthen me and help me grow because he's had you know, enough years in ministry. He's been in you know, 30 or so years. So he can relate to most of the challenges and the feelings of inadequacies that the pastors feel, myself included. We, we struggle with feelings of inadequacy. I mean, we're proclaiming the word of God and, and we're flawed. Uh, so, I, I mean, there's this feeling of inadequacy that we wrestle with. And, and Pastor Greg is able to co- sort of, you know, coach and, and, and encourage me um, through these experiences, through ministry, uh, based on his experience. And that's, uh, by the way, we should be praying for Pastor Greg. Last week in the middle of his sermon, he, uh, his pancreas failed. Um, and he had to be uh, rushed out. Um, he's a good guy, but you know, one of the reasons I'm sure that he's going to recover from this, or, or fairly confident that he's going to recover from this, is because, man, he, there's so much that he has to offer. There, there are so many pastors that struggle with feelings of inadequacy, and, and, and he's no different, but he's a little further along on the journey. And so he's able to help, uh, you know, I, I hate to refer to myself as young, uh, younger, I guess, guys, um, through the ups and downs of ministry. But that's the kind of role that Paul played in the church in Philippi. He could help them to grow in their faith. To, to, be, to become healthy, to, to navigate through some of the, the difficult scenarios, the difficult situations, the difficult conflicts that they were facing. And by doing that, he'd bring them to the second reason he was convinced that, he would be, uh, that it was more likely that he would be able to continue his earthly ministry. And that's because the more progress a person has in the faith, the more joy they learn to experience. Uh, as one commentator noted, quote, progress without joy is spurious. Joy without progress is counterfeit. End quote. So if you want to use the analogy of a football team, what is this, number two? <laughs> if you want to use the analogy of a football team, Paul's not the owner of the team, right? That, that would be Jesus, of course. But he is kind of like the coach in that he, he, uh, you know, he, he has an emotional connection to them. He knows them. He has an ability to relate to them and bring the best out in them. That's what a coach is supposed to do. And he knows that there's joy in, in making these strides and in, in becoming the best that they can be. 
And ultimately, Paul knew that if he would be able to remain alive and to be able to, to come and visit the Philippians, they would glory in Christ Jesus. Why? Why would they be so excited about Jesus if, if Paul shows up? Because they would recognize it for what it is, which is an answer to prayer. Remember, there are two things that, that give Paul confidence. The fact that he's got uh, the Holy Spirit working in him and strengthening him, and he's got the prayers of the Philippians. So they'd recognize his arrival for what it was. It, was an answer to their, it would be an answer to their prayers. See, when, when we see God answer our prayers... It makes us excited to be a Christian, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever been there and, and done that? Have you ever seen God answer a prayer? And, and you're just so excited. Your response is something like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. You know what I'm talking about? Have, have you ever been there? I mean, it's an amazing feeling. You know, I remember, um, to, to, to use my back as an illustration, you know, the first day that my back stopped hurting, I was in Arizona. And, and uh, we, you know, I'd been hurting for three and a half months. And we were at this river, and I, I, I stood up, and I, I walked to the car, a 10-minute walk to the car. And I had no pain for the first time in three and a half months, just for a moment, just long enough to make this 10-minute this walk to our car. And I remember getting to the car and having my eyes just kind of well up with tears, not because I was hurting, but because I was glorying in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Ten minutes of no pain. It was, it, was, it was so awesome. I didn't know, you know, in five minutes, am I going to be right back to where I, I don't know. Maybe. But I just had 10 minutes of no pain. And it was like an answer to prayer. So uh, I think it's safe to say that in, in that moment, I kind of gloried in, in Christ Jesus the way that Paul's saying they will as a result of answered prayer. See, those types of, of moments, that we're, when we have those, whatever it is, are important for our growth in Christ individually, but, but even more, uh, it, it's very important for the collective group because it brings a community that's divided back together. It brings them back to the point where they're willing to, to let go of their grudges, to let bygones, you know, just be, be bygones because we've got something in common here. We've got common reason to celebrate. That's why you see, you know, when, when a team wins the Super Bowl, you see all kinds of fans get together. They might not have a whole lot in common. They might not even like each other. But when their team wins, and it's the same thing here, if they have a reason to glory in Christ Jesus together, maybe those divisions will be gone. That's what Paul had in mind. And while Paul was pretty confident that he, that he would remain alive, he wasn't absolutely positive that that's what the outcome would be. And so for that reason, I think, he, he sort of takes a step back to kind of add a, a, a disclaimer statement, uh, just in case everything goes wrong and Paul is um, put to death or, or unable to visit them. So he continues in verses 27 and 28. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So here, what Paul's really doing here is turning to the real reason that he's writing them. This is the, the primary purpose that we have this letter in our Bibles today. That is, he wants to address the strife 
and the divisions that have risen up between the members of the church in Philippi. And we'll learn in chapter 4 that it was actually a rivalry. The, the main thing, the, the main division, was a rivalry between two women whose names sound like uh, you're odious and, and so touchy. Uh, their names are Euodia and Syntyche. Um, you're odious, you're touchy. I mean, it sounds like a reason for a division, right? Um, although we don't actually even know what their rivalry was, was all about. We, we have no idea what the rivalry was about, which I think is actually a really good thing. That's for our benefit, because imagine if it, if it said, you know, it was over, um, just to throw a reason out there, let's just say it was over a guy, okay? Um, we'd say today, we'd look at it and we'd say, well, you know, our strife and our division isn't over, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, two, two women fighting for a guy, so it doesn't apply to us. So because it's, it's vague, because it's left just ambiguous, and we're not sure what the, the strife and the division is for, it's for our benefit, because we can look at this and say, okay, this does apply to us. Because all rivalries, all bitterness, all grudges within the church body need to be dealt with. They need to be dealt with. Not, not with one of the people just deciding to up and leave the church, but with both people taking ownership of their part in whatever the conflict is and forgiving, choosing to forgive out of love, choosing to forgive the other party or, or parties against whom they've held feelings of uh, discord or, or uh, disharmony. And sadly, you know, this is, just to be honest, it's one of those issues that we just don't take all that seriously in churches today. We take it far too lightly, but it's one of those things that the scriptures actually place a tremendous amount of emphasis on. God's word tells us that apart from coming to Christ, there's not a whole lot in life that takes priority over living in harmony and in unity with fellow Christians. It's one of the most important things that you can do. We're like a family, and let's face it, family life can get messy sometimes. You know, you have siblings that uh, squabble and, and bicker over just ridiculous things. Uh, you, you have the nutty aunt um, you, who, you know, you always feel like you need to apologize in advance for. You have the, the weird uncle who's just kind of quiet, and you wish you could just kind of keep him tucked away in a, in a closet somewhere. Uh, but despite all this, despite, you know, dysfunction or disharmony in the family, the, the family sticks together. The family works through things because they love each other. And that takes a lot of work. It takes a commitment to doing it. So what options do people have when there is an interpersonal conflict that they're involved in in the church? Well, their, their first option is they can leave. But just know that there is absolutely no biblical basis for that at all. There is no biblical precedent for somebody just up and leaving a church. The Bible is all about reconciliation and peace. That's what it's all about. First, we're reconciled to God in order that we can have peace with Him. And then we're to remain constantly reconciled to others in order to have peace with them. Paul addresses interpersonal conflicts actually a, a few times in his letters. And never once, never once does he say, you know, maybe you should just go find a new church. Maybe you should just jump ship and, and get out of there and find some place where you'll be happier. No, instead, what he, what he told the Romans, for example, was, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. Live at peace with all. That's Romans 12, 18. That does not mean or imply in any way running away. You don't live at peace with people by running away from them. It means working through it together. 
It means being willing to accept your part of it and to forgive. You see, when a person just decides to leave without working it out, they're really ultimately cheating themselves. They're cheating themselves out of an opportunity to see God's glory revealed as it's only revealed in reconciling a broken relationship. You miss the increased closeness that comes in the relationship when there's conflict and you work through it together and you're closer, you're tired knit when you come out of it because of your willingness to work through it. That's only done, that, that closeness, that bond is only done through reconciliation. And not only is the person who leaves cheating themselves, but they're also cheating the entire church body because the church body won't be able to witness those things either. It's really just cheating everybody involved. To leave is certainly not walking in a manner that's worthy of the gospel because the gospel is all about grace. As recipients of God's grace, we should be eager, more than willing, to demonstrate grace towards one another. And walking away from the situation simply prevents that from happening. So that's your first option. The second option is to stay but not work through the issues, not address the issues, just kind of bottle it up. Uh, and this actually has some of the same problems as, as leaving, uh, holding on to, to bitterness, holding on to resentment uh, is ultimately cheating yourself and poisoning yourself. I've, I've often said that holding on to bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the person you're, you're angry with to die. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's kind of silly. But because we, we hate confrontation. We do. I mean, most people hate confrontation, hate conflict, and so this is the road that people usually try to choose. And, and I'm just going to openly confess with you guys that this is a struggle for me as well. This is the road uh, that I often uh, try to choose as well. I'm no exception. But what I've found, not only in, in my own personal experience by making this mistake over and over again, uh, but also by what I've seen in the lives of others, is that holding on to, to that bitterness... And holding on to that unforgiveness or anger, it doesn't really resolve it. it, it you, you, might, you might not have to deal with it, but it's left unresolved. Instead, it creates increasing distance from the person with whom you're, you're angry. And, and that person just wonders, what in the world is going on? Why is there this, this increasing distance between us here? And again, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here as much as I'm preaching to anyone else. But refusing to deal with an offense isn't even a real option. It's postponing it. It's postponing it until you get to the point where you're just ready to explode. And I'm sure that every one of you knows exactly what I'm talking about. You bottle it up, you bottle it up, you bottle it up, and before you know it, you're ready to explode while suffocating the relationship until you get to that point. And this is certainly not walking in a manner worthy of the gospel either. It's something that we all struggle with. Thankfully, there's grace but this is not an option. The third option is to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And what does that mean? It means uh, reconciling and demonstrating grace toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. For one thing, I mean, we can pretty much know that just by taking a guess. Uh, but we don't have to guess because while Paul doesn't do a whole lot of expounding here in, in, in this uh, particular passage, he does expound on it elsewhere. If we look at uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, if you've got your Bible with you, uh, keep, keep one finger in Philippians and, and Colossians is, uh, let's see, God eats potato chips. So a few books later, <laughs> that's how I remember, that's, that's uh, what I use. Um, 
He says this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does that mean, Paul? Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So Paul expounds here on what it means to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord and worthy of the gospel. It means pleasing God in every way. How? In two ways, he says. First, by bearing fruit. He's talking, of course, about the fruit of the Spirit and by increasing in uh, the knowledge of God. Quick question, pop question for you guys. Uh, How do we bear fruit according to John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5? Anybody know? One word answer. Abide. Abide in Christ. That's how we bear fruit. If we don't abide in Christ, we don't bear fruit. If we abide in Christ, we bear much fruit. Walking in a manner worthy of the gospel also involves seeking our strength in the glorious might of the Lord instead of ourselves. We're not relying on our strength. We're relying on the strength that He gives us. Why do we need His power? For all endurance and patience and joy. You think you might, by chance, need a little bit of endurance and and patience when you're dealing with groups of people who have conflicting personalities you think you might need endurance and patience yeah just a little bit right yeah you better believe you need it uh walking in a manner worthy of the gospel also means giving thanks living living a thankful life giving thanks to the father for qualifying you to share in the inheritance of the saints and this is great because this is this is what really humbles all of us We didn't qualify ourselves for this inheritance of eternal life and fellowship with God. He did the qualifying. He qualified you. And that levels the playing field between fellow believers, doesn't it? It it just levels off the, the field because none of us deserves it more than anybody else. None of us deserve it. It's all God's grace. And so walking in a manner worthy of the gospel means walking differently than the world walks. The world is built on these social hierarchies. Uh, human nature dictates that, you know, if we've got a grudge against somebody, if, if there's conflict with somebody, if, if we're enemies with somebody, we desire some type of harm to them, whether that means physically hurting them or hurting them by uh, trying to hurt them, by avoiding them, uh, giving them the silent treatment, keeping our distance from them. One way or another, we're trying to hurt that person. But God calls us to love even our enemies. And the thing that I love about the fact that God calls us to love our enemies is the fact that he didn't ask us to do something that he hasn't already done. Because every single one of us was once an enemy of God, and yet he loved us. And we're supposed to extend the same courtesy to others, to love our enemies to love our enemies. How dare we not extend the same grace toward others, especially the people whom Christ died to redeem? Man, God's kingdom is is just so different than the world. God's kingdom is is built on, on grace and humility. It's built on love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this is so much better than anything that the world has to offer in terms of how you relate to other people and what kind of fruit comes out in your life. So what we need to understand here first and foremost is that walking in a manner worthy of the gospel is bigger. Walking in a manner worthy of the gospel is better than anything 
that anyone could possibly strive for on a personal level. You want to hold a grudge against somebody? Walking in a manner worthy of the gospel is better. You want to exalt your power and influence over, uh, over the leaders or other leaders of, of the church? Walking in a manner worthy of the gospel is better. You want to fit your own personal agenda into the agenda of the church? Walking in a manner worthy of the gospel is better. So whatever the case may be, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel is always better than doing things the world's way. So what do you do? What do you do when you come across somebody in the church who, who, who makes you feel like a soft piece of wood and they're like sandpaper and they're just sitting there rubbing on you and rubbing on you. Every time they talk to you, it's like they're rubbing on you and rubbing on you. What do you do? You walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. You forgive. And if you're truly offended by them, you deal with them privately in accordance with what Jesus instructed in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. He said, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be reconciled first with your brother and then come and offer your gift. What God's saying there is that if, if there's a, a rift between you and another person in the body of Christ, don't even come to me with your offerings until you've dealt with this first. That's how important it is to God. And so Paul thinks that it's probably more likely that he will remain alive and to be able to come and see the church in Philippi, help them work through the strife and the conflict that they're facing. But he's not sure. So he says, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See, in one way or another, and nobody's exactly sure how this happened, you know, he, he knew a lot of people and word spread very fast in those days because they didn't have the internet, they didn't even have newspapers, and so people would talk, and there was always commerce going from one city to the next, and word would travel with those people. So in one way or another, Paul kept tabs on all the churches uh, that he was affiliated with in one way or another. For the, uh, for the Romans, he, he wrote to them, quote, your faith is being reported all over the world. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. So the church in Corinth, he was kind of disgusted with their reputation, but he knew their reputation. He said this, he said, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. So the church in Galatia, he was even more disgusted, more repulsed. He wrote to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. So in one way or another, Paul found out, he, he received word about what other churches he was affiliated with were going through. And so even if he wasn't able to physically visit the Philippian church, he knew that somehow, one way or another, he would receive word about their progression or about their regression. He'd hear about progression if the people chose to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. He'd hear about their regression if they didn't. And so Paul gives us two keys to the kind of progress that he's talking about. First, they have to stand firm in one spirit. And Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit here that keeps us together, that bonds us, that unites us. And this is so hard for us in, in our culture. This is so counter-Western culture because we're such a, a consumerist culture we're all consumers and we take this mentality that we get from from that and we carry it over to to the church you know if we if we don't like the the service that we get at one restaurant we know 
that there are 10 other restaurants that would love our business and we take advantage of that. So we, we, we go to management, we say, hey, wait a minute, you know, I'm not getting the kind of service I want here. I'll take my business down the road if I have to. Uh, if, you, if you order a computer, uh, you, you customize it so that you get exactly what you want. And so what happens is you, you take this, this mentality where it's all about what you want and getting things your way and we take that into the church and we develop this mindset that it's all about us. That, that it's all about making us happy. And we, you know, we should be doing things the way we want to do things because that's the way we like to do things. Because customer's king. And we're the customer, right? In every situation except this, maybe. This leads us away from walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. It doesn't cause us to lead in a manner worthy of the gospel, to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel. It encourages us not to stand firm in one spirit. So the hostility that, that we face from the enemy of God uh, and from the world is designed to divide us and destroy us. But Jesus, on the night that he was handed over to the Roman authorities, he prayed for his followers and for the followers of his followers. In other words, he was praying for us because there's this chain that, that leads back of believers. He, he's praying for us. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we, the Father and Jesus, are one. That's John 17, 11. And the fact that Jesus prayed this right before he was taken into custody tells me that this is something that seriously mattered to him. This is something that was very, very important to him. And see, if we desire to be obedient to Jesus, we must have enough resolve that we refuse to compromise on this. We refuse to, to back down. And, and we find the power and the strength uh, to do that through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God unites us, it bonds us together, it strengthens us to stand together in the midst of division and to work these things out, overcoming anything that would seek to divide us, because the truth is, we are better together than we are apart. We're better as one group, as one body, than we are individually. Secondly, we have to work, the word that Paul uses here is strive. We strive side by side with one mind. The Greek word for strive is pretty interesting. It was actually a Greek word that was used to describe a military unit as the soldiers of the unit stood side by side working together, uh, carrying out the orders that they had been given. They're all on the same page. They're all working to advance against the enemy. The picture that Paul is giving us is the picture that Paul is giving us is of a group that's so tightly knit together, so strongly united that they're not seen as striving individually, but they're striving all together as one person. Using the football analogy, everyone clearly understands and is committed to carrying out the play that gets called. And so they're advancing the football down the field because they're all of one mind. They're all on the same page. They've all got the same mission and they all have the same way to carry out that mission. They all know exactly what they're going to be doing because you don't advance the ball down the field by striving against one another. You do it by striving with one another against the adversary. And Paul instructs them to do these two things in order to advance the faith of the gospel, to spread the good news of forgiveness that each person so desperately, desperately needs to hear. And when we work together uh, as one, 
Rather than against one another, we have less and less reason to fear the opposition. See, from the perspective of the flesh, there are a lot of things to be afraid of. Death, maybe. Intimidation. Being mocked. There's a lot to be fearful of and intimidated by. For the Philippian Christians, certainly. You remember how Paul was thrown into a jail cell for, for his witness, his testimony, in the city of Philippi. I mean, it was, it was a hostile environment. And Paul knew that this was the environment that they were flourishing in. He knew that if he was persecuted for, for his faithfulness and sharing the gospel message, the Philippian Christians were going to expect uh, exactly the same thing themselves. And so who were their opponents? Who were their adversaries? I mean, uh, the Roman Empire, obviously, um, you know, that was a big one. But, but don't overlook the same pagans that had Paul and Silas thrown in jail, not to mention uh, any false teachers who may have uh, come into their midst, trying to sneak into their midst. I mean, think about it. Think about how easy it would have been for somebody to discredit Paul. Uh, they, they could have just come in and said, you know, can't you see that God is punishing Paul? I mean, look, look how this guy who, who's giving you this message, look how he is suffering. Obviously, God's not happy with him. It would have been really easy for somebody to, to come in and say that. And, you know, obviously, what he, because he's suffering, what he said must not be true. And this is actually one of the central doctrines of the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all because it doesn't have the power to save. It teaches that the more faith you have, the more God will bless you. And the more God blesses you, the more God will fit your carnal needs, your carnal desires. And you can live in that. And therefore, you'll be healthy and wealthy. And this is a concept that is completely foreign to the Bible. But it's so enticing and so tempting to our flesh because we, we see that all around us. We see people who are healthy and wealthy and we say, I want to be like that. But unlike health and wealth, suffering and persecution actually have a cleansing effect on God's people. J.C. Ryle once said, quote, Trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, and to drive us to our knees, end quote. See, what it does is it lifts our eyes away from all of these things that distract us when things are going well. It strengthens our desire to be in God's presence, and it forces us to remember that this world is not our home. It serves as an example for others to follow when, when they're going through suffering as well. Uh, it gives us empathy and a heart to minister to people who are, who are suffering alongside us. And it, one other thing, it destroys the weed that never took root. In other words, it chases false converts away. And that's one of the lessons that we get from the parable of the seed is that there will be people who don't take root. When the sun comes, it just burns them up to nothing. And so it eliminates what isn't real, what hasn't taken root from what has taken root. Paul makes it clear that a church that's standing together in the unity that God created them to experience won't be frightened, they won't be intimidated, but this, this type of unity is also solid evidence of something else. He says in, in verse 28 here, this is a clear sign to them, their persecutors, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. See, the Christians in, in Philippi would be persecuted, but if they would stand together, 
to advance the gospel, their unity, the fact that they're staying together instead of scattering would be a clear sign of the impending doom of these people who are persecuting them. Why? Because everybody knows it's not natural for people to stick together through difficult circumstances. And there's actually a lot of irony here. I don't know if you see this, but the, the, the irony is that their opponents, those who, who were persecuting them, who were seeking their destruction, uh, were actually receiving a sign of their own destruction by persecuting them. You see that? But the unity of the church in the face of intense persecution would also serve as evidence of something else. The salvation of those in the church. And the same holds true for us. If we're facing trials, if we're facing conflict, uh, and, and we stick together anyway, it's evidence of the fact that we are indeed saved. And so we must stand together, expecting to face trials, expecting to face suffering, expecting that there will be divisions among us sometimes. That's what the enemy wants to do. And we work through it. And that's proof of our salvation. Suffering for the sake of the gospel, going through difficult circumstances, trials and tribulations for the sake of the gospel is not a curse. It's an honor. And that's why Paul finishes up this section writing this. Verses 29 and 30. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you, that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You might find it kind of surprising. I, I was actually kind of shocked as I was uh, you know, doing my research on this verse, or on this passage. Uh, the word granted is actually derived from the same Greek word that means grace. Granted means grace. It's been, it's been given by grace to you that for the sake of Christ you will believe and suffer. And it's hard to see persecution and suffering as a form of grace, isn't it? It is. That is, until you've been through the ringer a few times. I haven't ever grown as much in my faith as I did during the time when my back was hurting last summer, I was constantly in pain. And so what did I do? I was just constantly praying about it. Constantly. Constantly. I mean, it wasn't persecution, but it was certainly suffering. And Paul's saying there's grace in our suffering. Because it stimulates our growth. Sometimes it even causes exponential growth. And Paul wanted to make sure that the Philippians knew, without any question, that suffering hardships, persecution. They weren't a form of punishment from God. It wasn't something that happened outside of God's will. No, it was perfectly in accordance with God's will. And it was proof of the fact that they belonged to Jesus when they stood together despite their circumstances. Of course, Jesus told his disciples that if the world hated and persecuted him, the church could expect the exact same thing for themselves. As Christians, individually, and as a church, we are all in the same boat. We are in this together. We are a family. We're not just a group of people that gather for the sake of gathering together. We are a family. Sometimes we're a dysfunctional family. But we're called to be committed to sticking it out. That's our calling because that, that's what a family does. Not so much out of obligation, but out of love. 
Not one of us stands alone. And let us never dare to isolate, separate, or divide ourselves from the group because God's desire is that we stand together because we are better together than we are apart. As Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And love covers a multitude of offenses. It covers a multitude of sins. And love is what keeps us together when everything else is trying to pull us apart. The joy of Christian unity is found both in the message that our unity sends to the world and in the assurance that it gives us that when times are tough, we find the Holy Spirit's power to stick it through. And because of that, we know we belong to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, let us not take this issue lightly at all. May it be something that changes the way that we look at each other. Knowing, Lord, that you you died for your people and we're no more deserving than anyone else of your grace. We didn't deserve it at all, neither did anybody else, and the playing field is leveled. And so, Lord, I pray right now that that you would just help us to, to grow in this way. That we, would, that we would be willing to, to address offenses and sins against one another, not out of a spirit of disharmony, but out of a spirit of a desire to be one and working through things together. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. We know that you loved us, and so you made a way for the relationship to, to be reconciled. Lord, I pray that that would just change the way that we relate to other people that you've redeemed Give us a passion for it, Lord, to stand together, to work together as one, rather than to be seeking our own desires and needs on our own. We love you. Teach us to glorify you through our unity. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.